Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 14, 13 through 21. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. They, and they took up 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. The word of the Lord. All right. Well, before we dive into this, I feel like we're in this weird spot of summer where it's what, August 6th, and I call this like the melancholy of summer. So like all these fun things that we've had planned have passed by and now we're in this in-between space of like, oh my gosh, school is starting, I have to buy school supplies, I have to uh, maybe put the kids to bed before 10.30 uh, and we can't sleep in anymore. And so right now we're in this lull of like, oh my gosh. And so we're kind of just like a little bit more quiet in our spirit, we're a little bit more like, what do we do next? And then like leading up to Labor Day, then we're like, one more party, one more party. And so if you're in that spot where you're feeling a little restless about the melancholy of summer, join the party, it's okay. But I wonder this morning, uh, as we dive into the feeding of the 5,000, uh, just be thinking about like, what are, you, what are you actually hungry for? What are you hungry for? And so just a little background as we jump into this text is, so we're, we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children. So is it 10,000? Is it 15,000? Is it 20,000? Everyone has a different opinion, but it's way more than just 5,000. One other thing to note is that all four gospel writers mention this miracle. Okay? The only other two are the resurrection and some form of healing the blind, even though different characters kind of take place. So one of three miracles that all four gospel writers talk about. And so we've just come out of Matthew 13 where the last few weeks Steve has been talking about what is the kingdom like? What is the kingdom like? So we enter into 14 and we're still kind of one foot in that mindset of what is the kingdom like? And so then we begin chapter 14. But at the very end of 13, let's go back one second, is Jesus is in his hometown and he says, and he did not, or the, and the text says, and he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. So first I'll play, how does it feel to be rejected? <laughs> it sucks, all right. How does it feel to be rejected? Go ahead and answer, you can answer. Lonely. Lonely. Demoralizing. Demoralizing. What was that? Yeah. Disappointing. Heartbreaking. So we're coming out of the end of 13, and Jesus in his hometown, it's not just strangers, it's like they're pointing out like, oh, that's Mary and Joseph's son. 
oh, that's, a, that's, that's him who was teaching in the synagogues. And they're like, nope, don't believe, move on. So he's coming from this lonely, broken, heartbreaking place. And we start chapter 14, before we jump into our verses for today, with Herod's birthday party. Fun, huh? Interesting thing, Herod's birthday party, he's so pleased that at one point with his stepdaughter slash niece, hey, step, think about that for a second, stepdaughter slash niece, you can research it a little bit on your own, um, that he, he vows to give her anything she pleases. So she calls for the head of John the Baptist, who is currently in prison. Herod has been afraid of killing him because he's a little bit afraid of the crowds that are passionate about John the Baptist and Jesus. And so because he's made this promise, he orders his execution. And it says that the head is actually brought to the party on a platter. Okay? Sorry, kiddos. Um, and so we begin our text with when Jesus heard it. When Jesus heard news of John's death. So we recap, he's just been rejected in his hometown. He's grieving the loss of John, the man who baptized him. And so if we're thinking logically and linearly about what the next few verses should be about, it should be like Jesus sleeps for a week straight and watches romantic comedies on Netflix alone. <laughs> Not that I've ever done that. <laughs> but instead we have a story about hungry people. A story about a feast where all are welcome. And so perhaps the feeding of the 5,000 could also be called the tale of two feasts. First, we have the empire feast that highlights wealth and status and alliances and an unquenchable, disordered desire for power. So much so that the normative party behavior becomes a head on a platter. This feast structure of the empire leads to literal death, death of relationship with God and with each other, it's the I will do whatever I can to stay in power. This is the feast of scarcity and exclusion. A feast that highlights how our misplaced hungers keep leading us to death. And so this is not an all play, it's a vulnerable question. But I wonder if we could be thinking about what misplaced hungers in our life have resulted in death. What misplaced hungers in our life have resulted in death. And so Jesus, the very fully human Jesus at this point, like any human I know, wants to get away. And he probably feels like he needs to get away, his humanity on display. But what happens is some gospel writers say that the crowd was already waiting for him. So you have this picture of Jesus getting in a rowboat, sailboat, don't know what kind of boat, but he's rowing across this lake to the other side to a deserted place, and literally for the crowds to beat him there, they're just like, let's run around the lake. Let's like go the whole way. Let's lift up our robes. Let's go. So I'll play question. What does, the action that, what does that action of them being willing to run around the lake and wait for Jesus communicate about the state of mind of the crowd? They're hungry. They're desperate. Frenzy, eager, curious. Jesus, do you have a new structure? Jesus, do you have a new feast waiting for us? And so he's, he's grieving, he's mourning, he's been rejected. And his first response, 
compassion. In the Greek, splagnizomai, which means to be moved. <laughs> Katie loves that. Okay, we could say that splagnizomai almost sounds like spaghetti, similar because like it's relating to the intestines, the gut, the inward part. So many scholars say this compassion, that's just too nice of a word. It's like gut-wrenching internal pain on Jesus' behalf. And so if the signs or these miracles in the New Testament are always a sign of God's character, what is God like? What does God feel? What does God do? Well, in the midst of lonely rejection and painful grieving, God still offers compassion and healing. God still offers compassion and healing as we enter this text. And so one of the other ways that we can enter text is to notice what's moving in the text, what's moving in Scripture. So I'll play, what is God moving away from in this text? Status quo. I think I heard power. Feeling sorry. So there's the movement, moving away from Herod's feast structure. So to whom or where is God moving towards? Communion. To the poor, the sick, the outcast, the hungry. So if God can be characterized by movement, movement away from or movement towards, then we must ask ourselves, is my life going with the flow of God or against it? To what type of people does my life make movement towards? And could I actually be out of the flow of God? And I believe we all find ourselves there, out of the flow, against the flow. But maybe we'll have the courage to recognize it, to admit it, and then maybe even do the hard work of running around the entire lake and waiting for Jesus to arrive. Because when we convince ourselves that God's first reaction will be to shame us or guilt us that we've been out of the flow, he meets us with compassion and healing. And so the text says that we are in a deserted place. Interesting side note that I didn't know if I would bring up, but I kind of feel like going for it, is that later on, so we're in this deserted place, think of the landscape of first century where they are. It's probably the desert, probably a barren land. And later in the text, Jesus has everyone sit down and they're like, and there was a whole bunch of grass. And it was like, Jesus, what desert are you in? So even the landscape in this text is pointing to provision in unexpected places. Even the rocks are crying out that God provides a place of compassion and healing. And so we find ourselves in this remote, deserted place, wilderness place, a barren place. It feels like, Steve, this was beautiful this morning. It feels really dark and really impossible here. And so in your actual real life, when you're faced with a lonely, barren place and it's getting dark and it might be even getting a little bit scary, what's the obvious solution? Leave. Leave. So this is what the, the disciples say, like, hey guys, it's time to go home. It's been a full day with Jesus. It's been really good to be here, but 
it's time to go. Bible story over, amen. We're just going to do a campfire, just the 12 of us and him, and so just go. So their solution is just send them on their way. Leave this barren place. But have we given much thought to the really gut-wrenching truth that in order to experience provision, we must stay? In order to, to experience provision, we must stay. And the invitation to experience that starts with what do you see? Anyone familiar with the term hangry? Oh, wow, there's so many of you. Uh, I have a few family members, love you, uh, who get hangry. It's a real thing. I'm just kind of like, I can plow through till tomorrow. Um, my metabolism is so slow. Uh, <laughs> which is so true, but it's so funny. Um, but like, here's, what do you see? Like this hangry crowd in front of you. 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people. Do you only see the crowd with swelling needs? Tremendous needs. So the disciples first thought, all right, we have nothing we should leave. This is a deserted place, meaning where does the food come from? It's late, time to go home, bedtime, send them away. So that's how they enter. And Jesus has some words for them. He says, they don't need to go away. Well, oh, sorry, Jesus, um, but what are we going to do now? He says, well, they don't need to go away. Get over your self-concern. You're not seeing it. And if, if I'm them, I'm kind of just like stunned, a little bit silent, and like, now what? Now what? And so perhaps in that moment, the declaration of Jesus to his disciples was, the location of abundance is here. The location of abundance is here. Do you see it? And so I wonder this morning how our lives with each other and with the world might look different if the, mess, the primary message that we carried to a hungry world was the location of abundant mercy Abundant grace, abundant forgiveness, abundant delight, abundant compassion is here right now. Not some pie-in-the-sky escapism Christianity. Right here, right now. So Jesus is asking us this morning, can you see what's in front of you in a new way? I'm asking you to see beyond scarcity into the possibility of abundance. And that possibility of abundance starts with another question, what do you have in your hands? Well, that, that should ring a little bit of like Torah points, you know, in our mind, as Steve would say, but what do you have in your hands is a repeat question from God to Israel, to Moses, Exodus 4. How will I, well, what if the people don't believe me? Well, Moses, what is in your hands? Well, a rod, throw it on the ground, turns into a snake. Pick it back up, turns into a rod. Second Kings 4, goes visits with a widow. She has a small little half jar full of oil left. Says, what do you already have in your house? She fills up, so many jars. She fills up as many jars as her and her family can find. What do you already have in your hands? And so in this account, and John even details in his account even more, well, Jesus... We have a little boy's lunch. 
five loaves, two fish, which is essentially in that day, five paper-thin crackers and two sardines. Okay, that's a new way to look at it. Five paper-thin crackers and two sardines and 5,000 men plus women and children. So in this text, could God be saying to us, if you bring me what you already have, I will delightfully surprise you. I will delightfully surprise you. Then this is the invitation to live with open hands. Invitation to live with open hands. Here's an all play. What things do your hands grip the tightest around? Security. Security. Time. Time. Money. Money. What things do your hands grip the tightest around? Love. Love. I need to, let's go to coffee. Could God be inviting you this morning into the rhythm of exploring what it looks like to live with open hands? And when you look at your hands from your actual life and not somebody else's, what's there? And what will your posture towards it be? Will your posture be like the disciples and say, let's, let's leave this barren place. There's not enough. Or will your posture be that of what Jesus displays, where he says, God, thank you for these loaves and these fish. I gave thanks for it. I'm breaking it. I'm giving it to my disciples, and they're eating. So here we have this foreshadow to the Last Supper. There's no bloodshed yet, but give thanks for what you have. Break it and eat together. So Jesus is posturing his life different from the scarcity model, He says, let's have gratitude for what's in front of us. I'm preparing you for a new way of doing things, a new structure, a new kind of feast, a new way of seeing, a new flow to participate in. One of the other lectionary texts this week was Isaiah 55, and it says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. I read that this week as eat thankfulness. Eat gratitude. Posture your life and what is in your hands with gratitude and your soul will delight with the abundance before you. One of the other practices that I try to do is I try to read the text more imaginatively than just like, now I've read the scripture. So I want to try something with you and just share some thoughts about how I journeyed through this text imaginatively. So when they brought Jesus what they had, the five loaves and the two sardines, it doesn't say anything about how Jesus was now heaping with loaves and fish. Like, they weren't falling from the sky, they weren't springing up from the ground. That wasn't the miracle. Rather, the the disciples started living and serving out of this posture of thanksgiving and gratitude, They were now participating with joy and wonder. And so they're human, and they can only carry so many baskets out at a time. Eventually, they will run out. So Jesus' invitation is, when you run out, 
Stay close to me. Abide in me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. So if I put myself in their place, I wonder if they made their way back to Jesus with empty baskets and they started to doubt. I think maybe I would even start clenching my fists around what scraps were left in my basket and maybe even putting a few in my robe so that I wouldn't go hungry later. And so I'm making my way back to Jesus and I'm wondering, how will this ever work out? There's still so many people to feed, so many people that are hungry, and I just handed out all that I have. And so as they approach Jesus, I imagine him first seeing them. Maybe he even gives them a little nod, just to, hey, put that back that you put in your robe and offer it to the basket. And then maybe he holds up his hands with clenched fists as they walk towards him. He just slowly releases his fists and smiles at them. And one by one, they make their way all the way up to him. And he pulls them close and he whispers in their ear, Give thanks. Live with open hands. And as new tears fall down their face, he sends them back out to the hungry people with full baskets and full hearts. So then the miracle itself is found in the encounter with each family, each person in need, that needs to be fed and nourished and seen. The miracle is for us to occupy the space of profound lack and to experience provision. This bread transforms the wilderness. Can we entertain the thought that a place of perceived scarcity may turn out to be the place of wonderful abundance? so abundant that we eat our fill, are satisfied, and there are leftovers. So our last all play is, what does the miracle of leftovers imply? Continuing provision. Abundance. Food for tomorrow. Pay it forward. What if the miracle of leftovers is the implication that as disciples, we get to continue the miracle of feeding the hungry? What if the miracle of leftovers is that we get to continue the good work of declaring that, that abundance is here right now? So Genesis, what are you hungry for? And what are the people who are near you hungry for? I read this quote this week. For too many of us who live in the aftermath of traumatic events, a tidy, linear, cross-to-resurrection narrative simply does not map the reality of our undone lives. Pay attention to the space between death and resurrection, the space we might experience healing and redemption, even if just to go one step further. So the feeding of the 5,000 plus women and children is then the surprisingly unexpected 
witness to what the space between death and resurrection might look like. The space where our deep hunger is satisfied and miraculously we have enough left over to do the same for others. Let's pray. God, you surprise us in unexpected places and in unexpected ways. You ask us to take what's already in our hands and unclench our fists around it so that we might enter into a space of abundance. So that we might enter into a space of healing. God, as we move towards this 60 seconds of silence, remind us of what we're really hungry for. Remind us of the call, what will we do with the leftovers? Amen.